It's not just about Taiwan, although this is about Taiwan in particular. It's about the role of the U.S. in the world, and we are afraid of our own shadow. It is the week of October 18th, and welcome to episode 102 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Sarah Stewart, NSI Visiting Fellow and Executive Director of the Silverado Policy Accelerator, Matthew Ferraro, NSI Visiting Fellow and Senior Associate at Wilmer Hale and former Intelligence Officer, Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and myself, Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we're taking a closer look at the most recent news coming out of Taiwan, from the disclosure that the U.S. has special forces on the island to China's most recent provocative actions. We'll then change gears and talk about supply chain challenges, an issue that has consumers talking and worrying about their holiday gift shopping. So in the past two weeks, we have seen a ton of tension building up over Taiwan. China has been flying planes into Taiwan's air defense zone. It has been engaged in military exercises across the strait from Taiwan. Obviously, those are very provocative acts. Uh, The Biden administration revealed that American special forces have been in Taiwan for months training the Taiwanese on how to repel an invasion. Also, our Marines are helping with coastal defense in Taiwan. And uh, let's face it, that's a step forward from where we'd been in the past. On the positive side, in terms of tension, uh, there's this announcement that President Biden and President Xi Jinping are going to have a summit meeting, although virtual, before the end of the year. So, Jamil, I'm going to go to you first here. In my experience dealing with the China issue, which only goes back like 30 years, uh, whenever you talk to the Chinese and they start bringing up the Taiwan issue uh, and going through their talking points about how terrible it is that the United States is doing anything with a place like Taiwan, uh, it is usually a way to put pressure on the U.S. over some other issue. In other words, kind of an evergreen thing. It's a phenomenon, and it's usually uh, brought up by the Chinese communist government when they're trying to achieve some other end. What do you think is going on here with the current tension over Taiwan? Is it this evergreen phenomenon or is it something else? Well, look, I mean, I think obviously uh, China sees the U.S. right now at a relative point of weakness in terms of um, its willingness uh, to engage militarily overseas. It's watched uh, our behavior over time um, uh, with the Syria red line uh, back during the Obama administration. It's watched our behavior with respect to Russia and the invasion of Ukraine. Um, it's watched our behavior with respect to its own building of, of militarized islands in the South China Sea. And now, uh, in the latest uh, sort of version of this, it's seen our behavior with respect to our departure uh, and withdrawal from first Iraq back uh, a few years back and now, and now Afghanistan. Um, and what it sees, at least from its perspective, I would, I, I would guess, I would hazard a guess, um, is a, a U.S. unwilling to engage actively in the world, a U.S. unwilling to put itself out militarily, um, and a U.S. not prepared to stand by uh, its allies, except when absolutely pushed to the limit. And so while some of the things you see here and um, that you've, that you've uh, described, including the sailing of our, of our ships through the straits, um, um, although I would, I would note that it's a, sort of a smaller force than we typically have sailed through the straits. Um, historically, it's been an aircraft carrier battle group. Uh, here we're seeing a, a guided missile class destroyer, um, an Arleigh Burke class destroyer. Um, but but even that and the and the and the sort of the advisors that we have on the ground in Taiwan that have now been disclosed, um, 
you know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily evince a, a, a rock solid commitment to the defense of Taiwan that you might've seen. And so I think China's perception is, and it's testing the US, I think, to see where our boundaries are, if they are there and what those boundaries look like. Um, and as far as they can probably tell, it, it looks like they've got a lot of wiggle room. And so uh, while I don't necessarily see an, an invasion of Taiwan being imminent, although it could come any day, um, I think that uh, Chinese perception of U.S. resolve is that it's significantly weakened from where it's been historically, you know, going back a decade and a half, um, and that we've seen a, a sort of a forward-moving sort of version of that of that decaying of U.S. resolve, uh, most most recently heightened by our or identified by our Afghanistan withdrawal. So I, that's why China's getting more aggressive. Um, it's testing our boundaries, wanting to see how far we'll go, if, if whether we'll go far at all, and. Um, and, uh, you know, I think at every turn, it, it hasn't been deterred, um, as, by the way, uh, neither have uh, neither have the Russians uh, in their behavior in cyber um, or the like. And so we've seen a lot of this happening. Um, and so around the globe, you, you know, the, the Turkish uh, um, uh, more aggressive military posture, its purchase of Russian missiles, um, the the Russian behavior in, in the Middle East and the like. And so we've seen this around the globe. The Chinese uh, China Taiwan situation um, is just one significant and potentially hugely problematic example of that in my view. So I want to come back to this question of if there is an invasion, what what the U.S. would, uh, invasion of Taiwan by China, how the U.S. would and should respond. But before we get there, uh, Sarah, let's let's start by rounding out a little bit some of the other issues that may be uh, on the table right now. Trade, trade relationship between the U.S. and China, it's the biggest in the world. It's hugely important to our economy. It's hugely important to the Chinese economy, which means it's massively important to the world economy. Uh, there are sanctions regimes left over from the Trump administration that are still in place under President Biden. These talks are are looming before the the end of the year. Can you can you give us a little primer on what's going on in terms of the U.S. China trade relationship? Yeah, absolutely. And I would just say that I agree with Jamil that um, China is definitely testing us. I think they're going to be testing those boundaries in our trade relationship as well. They're coming off of, um, you know, four years of a Trump administration that was very different in terms of a bilateral trade relationship than we've had with with the Chinese. And I think they're trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is this Biden administration planning planning to do? Um, But before we get to that, I thought maybe I would just, you know, set the set the table a little bit. Um, You know, I think when Trump first came in, there was some question as to whether or not we would actually have a fruitful a trade relationship with China. I mean, I think everybody remembers the the chocolate cake at Mar-a-Lago and there was a bromance that was budding for a little while there, but it was very quickly over. Um, And about a year after that, we saw the Trump administration release the Section 301 report that detailed extensive theft of U.S. technology and IP and led to U.S. tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars of Chinese imports. Um, China turned around and retaliated and and turned this really into a two-way trade war. Um, that's still going on, covering everything from, you know, beef to handbags to, you know, all sorts of, of, of other 
um, you know, commercial off the shelf type of product, as well as as sensitive, sensitive technologies that we rely on. So I think, you know, we had a real escalation there. But then it was interesting, because the US labeled China as a currency manipulator, added Huawei to the entity list. And it seemed like things were going in one direction. But then there was an agreement reached under the Trump administration, a phase one deal. Um, Many people, you know, hailed this as kind of a a big milestone. And I think it was to some extent, but noticeably absent from this agreement where China said it was going to make some changes and buy, you know, several hundred million dollars worth of products from U.S. But noticeably absent were some changes that the Chinese needed to make structurally to, you know, their industrial, their industrial policies and the like. So here we are, Biden administration comes in, it's not an easy place to be. Um, I think people have been watching with a careful eye to see where things are going to go. Ambassador Tai gave a, a, a speech just a couple of weeks ago, laying out the trade policy. I think she did a pretty good job of laying out some of the challenges that lay ahead with with China, including the fact that they've been unwilling to take on some of these structural issues. Um, I think she's also right that we need a holistic approach uh, to dealing with this that's both domestic, you know, run faster than China and external facing. But I think that where the million dollar question still lies and what will influence the upcoming bilateral discussions is where is the leverage? What is our leverage to extract anything new from China that, you know, they haven't already given us or not given us? And I think that that is, that is really the tough part. With the Trump administration, there was a very unilateral focus on, on tariffs. Um, our allies were not willing to join in the game. I'm not sure that they're ready to come to the party now either. And so there is a limited universe, at least if you're looking just at, at the trade levers of what we can do to get the Chinese to move off of these entrenched policies that they've been unwilling to move off of, despite 300 plus billion dollars worth of tariffs, entity listings, you know, sanctions, uh, and the like. So I think we've got to really, you know, think about what are we going to do differently this time around that can actually amp up that pressure. And I, from my own personal view, that means you've got to get your allies at the table with you, because if you're going to use trade, you need a bigger market power in order to incentivize the Chinese to make any changes. Uh, great. Matthew, let's, let's talk about a couple of interesting developments in the, in the Intel space. One, um, the director of central intelligence, Bill Burns, announced that he was uh, that the CIA was starting a uh, China watching center uh, at the agency. Uh, seems like maybe we should have done that a little while ago, but that's that seems like positive news. But then uh, there was this kind of amazing story over the weekend that evidently China has the ability to launch a hypersonic uh, missile, nuclear capable, that can go all the way around the world uh, in orbit, and then 
hit hit whatever target it wants to. Seems a little distressing and even more distressing. We evidently did not know about that. So what what is your assessment of what we know about China generally? Sure. Uh, thanks, Les. And as always, a pleasure to be with you and Sarah and Jamil. So let me make three points here. First, on the Intel perspective, no doubt China has always been a hard target. It's a closed society with massive internal security apparatus. Figuring out what's going on inside has been a challenge like since the mid 20th century. You may remember, you mentioned China watchers, how our China watchers were relegated to reading tea leaves from Hong Kong and Taiwan during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. And now it's even harder to run assets inside the mainland. And that's because of the PRC's pervasive high-tech domestic monitoring, wall-to-wall CCTVs, facial recognition technology, control over cell signals, the whole works. On top of that, our listeners may remember that back in 2017, the New York Times reported that China had systematically dismantled CIA ops in the country over the previous several years. They even executed or imprisoned 18 to 20 sources, it was publicly reported. So it's evidently one of the worst intel breaches in history. And building back that capacity is in no doubt difficult. Doing it right takes time, takes money, takes patience, takes focus. Which brings me to your first point. I think it was a really good thing that Director Burns announced the creation of the China Mission Center, where we'll focus exclusively on gathering intel about the PRC and about PRC espionage against the United States. That's the kind of dedicated resources and attention we need to, in order to gather better intel on China. And I would just point to the Counterterrorism Center, which was stood up probably 20 years ago as a great model for this. That was a precursor to the National Counterterrorism Center. Not to get too bureaucratic and in the weeds, but again, the idea of sort of having a, a, a target focus, bringing all of your analysts, collectors, reports officers together against the target, and it really can drive change within a, an otherwise large and slow-moving bureaucracy. Second, on this hypersonic missile, I do think it puts in stark relief the importance of maintaining and modernizing our nuclear deterrent. No one wants a new arms race, but it's important to recognize that the reason we have a peerless, reliable, multimodal strategic force is to deter an adversary from ever launching a first strike at all. In this case, defense really is the best offense. And third, as surprising or distressing as this news may have been, I think we need to put it in context. China is investing in this kind of technology because the United States remains strategically predominant with a fortified second strike force. By that, I mean our missiles, our submarines, our bombers, and missile defense that is getting better. The MIT scholar Vipran Narang wrote about this this weekend, and I have to say I just want to quote him because I thought he was so excellent. He said, and I quote, one reason why the U.S. pursues counterforce and missile defense capabilities is precisely to force adversaries to invest a lot of time and resources to develop crazy experimental systems like this one. This is a feature, not a bug of U.S. strategy, end quote. I, I think he's 100% right. So we need to learn a lot about this test. We need to bolster, bolster our intelligence. We need to strengthen our deterrence. But I have to say the sky is not falling. No pun. So uh, this is for everybody. Uh, the big question out there regarding Taiwan um, and these and these provocative acts, whether they're uh, a 
on the China side because of demonstrated weakness by the United States, or if this is a kind of an evergreen issue, either way, at some point, the U.S. faces the question of whether it would come to the defense of Taiwan in the event of a military invasion or or what have you from China. So um, I guess the question is not, uh, is the U.S. going to come to the aid of Taiwan? Because that's obviously a decision made by the commander in chief and possibly Congress at the appropriate time. But rather, should the United States come to the defense of Taiwan in the event of uh, a Chinese uh, aggressive act? Jamil, you're, you're looking a little chagrined at my question. Please go ahead. Well, I mean, I think it's I, I think I'm chagrined to the question uh, less because it seems obvious to me. I think there is zero question that the United States should absolutely come to Taiwan's defense, as I think everyone has assumed it would for the last, you know, whatever, three, four decades, whatever it's been since the one China policy was instituted uh, by Richard Nixon. So I think nobody doubted nobody has doubted that until recent years. And uh, again, this goes back to a larger problem in U.S. global relations. It's not just about Taiwan, although this is about Taiwan in particular. It's it's about the role of the U.S. in the world. And we are afraid of our own shadow. We're afraid to be engaged militarily, whether you think that's because of endless wars in Afghanistan or uh, the error of going to Iraq and sort of our the modern Vietnam phenomenon in either Iraq or Afghanistan or both. Um, but whatever for whatever reason it is, right, in recent years, our Adversaries have seen us as weak and reticent to engage in any sort of confrontation, much less militarily. Although, as Sarah's correctly pointed out, uh, we have engaged in trade confrontations uh, with China um, uh, and the like in, in, in a significant way. Uh, but I mean, I mean, I mean, you know, military confrontation or, or, or getting close to it. Um, and, uh, and our allies have seen us as, as irresolute and unwilling to stand by them. Uh, whether you talk about our Afghan allies who have abandoned 20,000 of them to the hands of the Taliban, um, or our Kurds who President Trump threw under the bus uh, to the Turks, um, or uh, the Syrian uh, civilians who President Obama had told we would protect against chemical weapons and then we failed to do so, um, or the Ukrainians who thought we had their back when they joined the Partnership for Peace until Russia invaded and took a significant chunk of their country in Crimea. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It would be no surprise to me if, if Taiwan ends up on that list because everyone, the last three presidents have pretty much telegraphed the Chinese Hey, look, if you want to go in, go in. We're not going to do a whole lot because we're scared of our own shadow. Um, so should we defend Taiwan? Absolutely. Will we? Unfortunately, I think the answer is probably not. And that's a sad statement, uh, a sad you know, reflection on, on, on what America is as a nation and, and who we are as a people and what our leadership is. And by the way, I think the American people would support a defense of Taiwan. I think the fundamental problem is leadership at the top. And that's been true of Republicans and Democrats. And it's not just the president. It's irresolute members of Congress across both sides of the aisle. And it's not the America we should be, nor the America we should aspire to be. Matthew, Sarah? Um, sure, I'll, I'll chime in. Uh, I think that Jimmy makes some good points. And I would say that it's important, I think, to enunciate why, like the why. Why is it important to protect Taiwan? And let me make four points. The, the first is that Taiwan is an independent democratic society of over 23 million people. It's self-governing. And it would be a, just a horrendous precedent to allow it to be invaded and taken over by force. I mean, that would just be a terrible precedent for international peace and security. So that's number one. Number two is if China were to seize Taiwan, China would be in a position to menace Japan, Korea, and the Philippines, and would be able to project power well into the central Pacific, like Midway, 
Guam and Pearl Harbor, uh, Hawaii. And by that, I mean, think about what Japan was able to do during World War II when it attacked Pearl Harbor. That would fundamentally alter the balance of power in maritime Asia in China's favor. And playing the tape out, it would consolidate China's dominance over some of the world's most productive and wealthiest economies. And in time, that would make it more likely that parts of our lives, yours and mine, would be determined by decision makers in Beijing. So that's number two. Number three, for these reasons, we should not idly allow China to extend its military power beyond what's called the first island chain. And this is, I should say, I'm ripping off Bridge Colby, an old friend, but he's absolutely right. And that should be our line in the sand or the sea, if you will. And actually, if you're listening to this podcast right now on a computer or a tablet, go ahead and Google first island chain and get a map up in front of you to see what I'm talking about. So this runs from the Kuril Islands in the north to Japan, the Ryukyu Islands, which is Okinawa, Senkaku, Taiwan, the Philippines, Borneo, Vietnam, the Malay Peninsula. This is where the wealth of in Asia is. This is where our traditional allies are. This is where our maritime and aerospace capabilities are the most fearsome. So this has got to be our line. And my fourth and final point is this. One way to help ensure that we don't have to come to Taiwan's aid is to make it clear that we would. I am in favor of articulating clearly our commitment to Taiwan as a way of deterring China from seizing the country by force. I don't think ambiguity here helps. And I was heartened to see, and um, Jamil made this point, that we had a U.S. and a Canadian naval ships recently transit the strait. But that is the ninth time that our ships have crossed through the Taiwanese straits uh, this year. And I think that we need to do more to make it clear that this is just simply not something that we would tolerate. Sarah? I don't have much more, more to add other than to largely agree that, yes, I think we, we 100% should come to, to Taiwan's defense for all of the reasons. I would add a fifth, which is that at the moment, they have the only company in the world who can produce um, the, the leading edge uh, semiconductor chip. And that's something that you know, we should all be concerned about, especially when we're thinking about China launching hypersonic missiles that require leading edge ships and others. And so there's, you know, there's, there's a, a variety of reasons that, that we need to protect Taiwan. We also need to do a better job of educating Congress and the greater American public about the threats that are out there and why they are important to defend. Um, because I think, as, as Jamil pointed out, when, when push comes to shove, um, you know, making this case, um, we can't start making it after the invasions already happened. Um, we need people to start really like thinking about it now and being clear about what the U.S. and frankly, allies. And I come back to this because I think the U.S. has a leadership role and it should be taking a leadership role, but it shouldn't have to go out on a limb by itself on all of these things. And that is why, you know, the the AUKUS agreement is an important one, because it shows that this is not just the U.S., it's other allies in that region who are on the same page when it comes to a deterrent strategy against China. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Japan wasn't even part of the AUKUS agreement. And there's no one uh, in the region who's more hawkish on this issue than the Japanese. I'll, I'll just point out, I, I, I agree with you guys, um, Matthew, particularly your point that 
the best way to make sure there isn't an invasion of Taiwan is to make it clear that the U.S. would respond to defend Taiwan. Uh, and the more clear we can be about that, the better the guiding ethos for U.S.-Taiwan relations and really also U.S.-Chinese relations is in big part, in a big part, the Taiwan Relations Act from about 1980, 1979. This was before Taiwan was even really a democracy. It was just a, a the part of the Chinese revolution that happened to be more allied with the United States. And when we flipped to Beijing, Congress wrote into law a, a robust but non-diplomatic relationship with Taiwan. That That law has actually kept us closer to Taiwan in many instances over the last couple of generations than we otherwise would have been when the temptation was to economically embrace China 100%. It was that law that prevented us from, from going too far. Now, ironically, it's that law which is intentionally ambiguous about the question of whether the U.S. would come to the aid of Taiwan that might actually be limiting our options. And so I think uh, to, to maybe to make this point more clear and more robust, Congress and the president should be taking a look at that and making and perhaps making some changes to the the underlying uh, legal questions here, which which really have been significant for quite some time. Jamil, go ahead. Can I, can I just ask a question though? Because I'm not sure I got, and maybe I and maybe I missed it, but I don't sure I got a clear answer from the three of you on whether in fact we would defend Taiwan today. Less I was intentionally Taiwan. I was intentionally not asking yeah. that question. I, well, the question I, was I'm should not, we? Let me well let me ask that question right. I, I express my view, which is I don't think we will. I think it's a mistake. Um, Less over to you. Uh, I think, you know, I think under the current administration, I think they're misreading uh, where the American people are on certain issues, including ones like this one, and they would not respond immediately. But I think in this would is not something that would happen overnight. I think we would be dragged into it eventually, because in large part, because the American people would demand it. Kicking and screaming. Matthew? Uh, I I just said, I don't know is the honest answer, but I would say um, to vary a little bit from what Les said, I I think the key here is would be to intervene quickly and early to basically try to take out, uh, this is a tactical issue, basically take out as many ships as we could, PLA Navy ships uh, early on. And I will say that it it would be clear that our, that our, uh, position here would be purely defensive. We wouldn't get involved in a land war. This would, we're not getting involved in a land war in Asia. This would just using our maritime and aerospace capabilities to sink ships that were trying to transit the straits. Um, I would hope that we would, we would defend it, but um, I don't know. And I, I would like to see a, a greater clarity from the administration. So, so, so just so, so I understand your, your perspective on this, Matthew. So you think that we should, but it should be a naval a naval assault on their naval vessels. What happens if they if they drop paratroopers on the island, or they or they successfully transit the strait, even even with us going after them, and they, and they land they land troops on Taiwan? Then what? You don't want to get involved in land war in Asia. Would you say that we should we should engage in that conflict then? I mean, I, I would think that we already have troops in uh, Taiwan, so I would imagine well, but, they would be engaged. I, I, but, but my my point is that our competitive advantage competitive advantage here is on the seas and in the space. In the air and space, and so um, the the goal here, there's a, a figure that floats around that the U.S. should try to ship sink 350 PLA PLA Navy ships, PLA and ships, uh, within 72 hours of an attempted invasion, and I think that that makes good sense. Like that should be the goal. To sh- I think it's mission right, possible. So, so I just have one follow-on com- question. I want to ask Sarah the qu- same question. Yeah. Do you think the like honestly, and I know you said you're not sure. But let's say let's say that was the recommended strategy. Is there any chance on this earth that this administration 
would in the first 72 hours of China invade Taiwan attempt even to sink 350 Chinese ships? Yeah. What, what, are the, what, are the, what are the percentage odds you put on that? Because I put it at zero. Zero. It's zero. Higher than zero. I'm, I'm well, coming I, in. I'm a, like, are we right, 10, I'm going... or, 10 or 50? I, I don't. I, honestly, Jamil, I don't know. But I'm just saying that this should be, this should be the strategy. And no, I, of course it should be the strategy. But, no, of course it should be the strategy. But like this administration, like, okay. I, Sarah, your thoughts? I mean, look, I I want to believe that we would, but I don't think we are prepared to make that call. I really don't. I think what what we would see is, I, I this is how I think it would play out. Yeah. I think China would make a move. We would call for an immediate cessation while we have, you know, some talks to try to figure it out. I can't imagine, though, if we take a step back, what would be China's motivation here? Like if China's motivation was truly like a takeover of Taiwan and they thought that like at the end of the day, nobody would stop them and they would be able to gain this like huge strategic advantage. Okay. But I I don't think that that could be their smart calculation. So would they make some sort of like you know, half-assed measure to come in and then see if everybody was like, okay, uncle, like cessation, let's talk. And now they have some leverage. I don't know, but I, I think we would end up in cessation and let's talk before we would end up in um, sinking 350 ships or doing anything more. Or even two said that the Taiwan, the Taiwanese have a vote here. I mean, you know, they, they don't fall, fall under uh, PRC suzerainty, and and so they're they're going, I think, going to fight. I would imagine hard for their independence, and that could very well slow things down. Um, so yeah, I, mean, I guess I'm I guess I'm not quite as negative uh, as all of you. I think Sarah's point on uh, um, Taiwanese Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation is very well taken. I mean, it is an advanced semiconductor manufacturing company. And so the fact that that would fall under Chinese control, I think we give pause to a lot of people. Um, yes. And so, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really willing to write it off just yet. And as for why China would do it, I mean, I think uh, President Xi Jinping has been very clear that he wants to reunite the country. He sees his legacy as uh, tied up with that. They really do feel, I believe, the PRC does, that, that, it, that uh, Taiwan is a vassal of Beijing. It isn't, but I think that's what they think of. And uh, and yeah, so I think that um, they they would want us to do it completely. But I do think the Taiwanese would fight. I actually think that Matthew, the reason you just laid out is the only reason China's not going in today, is they're afraid of a prolonged guerrilla war in Taiwan. They're not afraid of the United States because they know there's zero chance we'd sink one Chinese ship, much less 350. Right? They they I think they assess the odds at a much different rate than even wherever you are, whether it's a 10 or 50. Right. Um, I think Sarah is exactly right that what we're likely to see here is, you know, hand wringing out of the United States as we hand wring about everything apparently nowadays, um, and a call to go to the UN and let's talk about it. Of course, you know, China has a veto at the Security Council, so that won't matter. Jamil, um, can I interrupt but, your rant? Can I interrupt your rant oh, to offer you one thoughtful alternative, which is that China isn't invading Taiwan right now because it's actually pretty useful for China to bring up the issue of Taiwan on a regular basis. And if they go ahead and invade Taiwan, even if they're 100% successful, they lose that and they earn the opprobrium of the international community, which granted isn't, isn't, hold on, 
hold on, isn't going to affect their bottom line necessarily right. on uh, the size of anything. the Chinese economy or anything. Hold on. Uh, but it is going to impact their ability to do certain other things in the region. So they want to like hold out what? the Taiwan issue for now as something that they can bring up as unjust and that they, they see more utility in that than they do in a military invasion right now. What about that? How does, it, how does it constrain them less, pray tell? How does it constrain them in the region or anywhere else? Well, because there is no one who's going to endorse their invasion of Taiwan right now. They actually, they actually, they actually have a certain number of countries who will say who are who have recognized Beijing and haven't recognized Taipei and are and are going to say, well, you know, they do have a point about reunification. They're they're in the balance for them is pretty good. Right now, they can use this issue diplomatically and otherwise to complain about whatever it is the U.S. is doing that they don't like, whether it's on the trade front or on some other front. It's it's an evergreen issue for them. There's still more utility in not invading than there is in invading. Less nobody said boo realistically about China, about Russia invading Crimea and taking it. Right. People complained and there were sanctions and all these things. And yet what happened? Nothing. The Chinese look at that and say, same here. Oh, well, the, the way, sanctions, the sanctions weren't nothing. We also provided oh, yeah. some nice it's, aid it's, to Kiev because of it. Oh, yeah. It's you gone were there. so well. It's gone you were so there. well for them. Yeah, we've, so well for them. we've maintained has the a, integrity of 80% of Ukraine. That's not bad. It's historically, that's pretty good. Yeah, great. Yeah, you and Joe Biden, right, can hang out with the, we got 90% of the Americans out of Afghanistan, and we kept 80% of Ukraine. So good to go. All right. I'm, I'm, inter- I'm, I'm right. rant interrupting again. We're going to, uh, we're going to flex to the second topic quickly. Uh, Jamil, is there something else you need to get out of your, no. out of your bio? I've duct gotten here? it out. Okay. I've All gotten right. it out. Sarah, uh, let's talk about supply chains before the last month or so. This might've been the most boring issue in all of international public policy. No offense to any trade lawyers out there, but recently it's become a lot more interesting as Americans go to the Home Depot and they try to buy a dishwasher and they can't get one for like three months or six months or something. So there is this supply chain crisis going on. Uh, We can't bring stuff in through our ports fast enough. Secretary of Transportation, Mayor Pete, was on TV over the weekend saying this could last well into next year. Uh, What's going on here? Yeah. So, I mean, I never thought this was a sleepy issue. Um, I always thought this was an interesting issue. Certainly when I worked at Amazon, this was definitely top of mind. Um, But no, I mean, we are definitely hitting an unprecedented fever pitch here. And I think you know, there's a lot of different things that are going on at play. Um, So basically we're, you know, in this perfect storm and we're all like in a tugboat, right? Um, We've had supply chains become more interdependent and complex. Um, I'll give you two examples. A single semiconductor chip can cross the border 70, 70 times during its production. Um, Another example Um, If you're a fisherman in Alaska and you catch a pollock, that pollock doesn't get deboned and processed, you know, on the ship in Alaska and put on your plate. It's frozen. It's sent to Asia. It's transshipped. It's deboned one place. It's processed another place. So it's crossing all sorts of, of, of barriers and being frozen multiple times before it gets to you. Um, so, I mean, this is just two, you know, examples of, of what we're talking about when it comes to supply chain. So it's really not surprising that when COVID hit, that everything was sent into complete imbalance. I think, you know, you had this combination of, 
you know, economies were locking down and people weren't going to work and factories weren't operating at the same capacity levels. You had millions of people who were sick, lost their job, couldn't come to work. I mean, like the truckers, you know, in the United States alone have lost tens of thousands of, of, of jobs. Um, and, you know, you also had a shift in what people are buying. People were buying three-piece suits and conference room telephones. And all of a sudden, everyone's like, I need a ring for my, you know, for my Zoom call and a Peloton. And so there was a, there was a change there. There was a change in, you know, everyone needed medical equipment. Um, and all of that combined led to um, this demand supply imbalance that, that we're seeing now. I think people are right just based on my own experience, it is going to get worse before it gets better. This is not going to be solved overnight. And a couple of things that are maybe uh, put a silver lining on this, which is this is the wake up call that we needed, (laughs) right? Um, It is not easy, but it is, we've got to deal with this. I think we need to figure out just a few things. One, what is critical and needs to be produced in the United States and nowhere else, right? What can be produced by our allies and that we could have access to? And what do we sort of not care where it's produced because we can figure it out if there is a disruption? Secondly, I think companies are going to be looking at the contingency plan to their contingency plans a lot differently given this whole situation. Our ports are going to need to really rethink how, you know, all of the logistics are working. We need to think about worker retention because there's a lot of jobs in warehouses and railroads and and trucking and everything else that needs to be dealt with. And last, we have an energy crisis that's compounding all of this right now. And so we need to think about, you know, what are we going to do? to have a lasting energy supply so that that doesn't compound the next time that we're in this situation. Matthew, uh, a huge part of our our trade that's related to this crisis, of course, is with China. Uh, how how realistic is it now that we kind of see the the material impact here? The idea that we would we would pull apart whole supply chains sector by sector with the People's Republic of China. Is there, you think this will produce any humility from policymakers on that front? Yeah, I think I agree with uh, something that Sarah said, which is I think we really need to focus on so-called decoupling only to those items or industries for which we really do need to build resilient supply chains by either bringing them back to the U.S. or what's called nearshoring them to like Mexico or Canada. And so focus on the central and forget about the peripherals. The administration has been doing this through these like supply chain reviews that began in February. Those are focusing on four critical industries, semiconductors, high capacity batteries, rare earth elements, pharmaceuticals. And so we should focus on decoupling on those kinds of supply chains, either like outright decoupling or doing what's called resilient supply chains, where you basically just make sure that that any any interruptions in one place isn't going to totally mess up the entire um, supply chain. Like IKEA furniture doesn't fit in the same category. I think we can let the market figure out the optimal structure for those sorts of supply chains, but really just focus on the things that we consider to be the most important for national security purposes. Jamil, what's your take? Should this be impacting our uh, our overall China policy? Well, I mean, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I think Sarah made the point that, um, you know, finally people are awake to this threat. I mean, we should have woken up to it at a minimum 
you know, five, six years, a decade ago, when the government knew this was a problem um, and has been talking about it internally for a long time. Uh, but the American people, I think, sort of started to wake up to it and should have awoken to it um, in the middle of the COVID pandemic when they real when we realized that we were so dependent for pharmaceutical precursors and PPE on China. The fact that we have still not enacted and funded legislation to deal with the semiconductors issue. We were just talking about Taiwan, TSMC, the fact that we're still waiting on that. The fact that we're talking about spending $3.5 trillion on ridiculous social spending, when we should be spending that on real, actual American infrastructure that's going to matter for, for our long-term future, right? Rather than just sort of social programs, make everybody feel good, right? Is it is ridiculous. If we're going to spend money on something, we ought to spend it on the larger competition with China. Let me tell you, uh, more more healthcare dollars and and whatever else it is um, is not gonna is not gonna change that equation. Um, and so uh, you know we have a uh, we have a White House that's dangerously out of touch with what we need. One would have thought you know we we heard that um, the adults were back in the room right and the adults were gonna were gonna bring us to the right place. And yet we've seen a president who makes decisions rashly, gets angry rapidly, sticks by those decisions. Um, you know, uh, at times when um, when when the evidence is clearly to the contrary, um, and then blames others, takes response, claims to take responsibility, and blames others. That's not just Afghanistan, by the way. It's most obvious that the Afghanistan conflict, but it's happened over and over again. And it's funny because you know we thought we had gotten rid of that when Donald Trump left office, and yet here we are, you know, um, ten months in, uh, nearly to the day, and um, it's not looking great. And so. Somebody's got to take account of this very problem, and the administration has been looking at it and talking about it and and been saying the right things, but it's got to do the right things. It's got to go to Congress and make the case for that money and for that investment and for that effort. And look, the American people are holding this administration accountable, right? Um, you know, we've seen the chants. I'm not going to repeat them, uh, but we've all heard them. And it's because what the American people are seeing at the grocery store, right, at the gas pump, right, in housing prices in rent, right? The American people are seeing it and feeling it. And um, and and the administration has got to take action. These are longer term problems. They're not gonna be solved by, you know, spending trillions of dollars and raising taxes in a way that ultimately undermines the ability of the American economy to function. Um, you know, we've got to get smart. And, and I worry this administration is caving in to, uh, to folks within its own party um, uh, in a way, and frankly, folks within the Republican Party that have become populist and don't and don't care about fiscal discipline and and and, and the like, and want to spend our way out of every problem, uh, including, by the way, the last president. Um, and so we've got to return fiscal discipline uh, to to our economy, and, uh, and we've got to take the China supply chain threat seriously. And unfortunately, I worry that I don't see real courage in the White House or in Congress in either party uh, to tackle this issue, and that's a really, really troubling sign. I would just say that, that I think uh, Jamil makes a really persuasive argument for the Bipartisan Infrastructure uh, Act, because that, that has $17 billion for port infrastructure and $25 billion for airports. And I think it, it would it would go a long way towards, as Jamil says, addressing the long-term issues of not having uh, the right kind of machinery, technology, uh, rail lines that we need to move this stuff quickly. And I can only say that I hope it gets passed. It was uh, the key Biden administration priority. It was passed overwhelmingly in the Senate and currently being held up in the House. But I think it could do a lot to reduce congestion. It's not going to solve like this problem tomorrow. But when we talk about uh, making investments that will help the future, this is really key. 
not just the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but also uh, the uh, bill, and I think you mentioned it, Matthew, the bill related to uh, uh, computer chip manufacturer here in the United States and also more basic research uh, through the subsidies from the federal government. It's bipartisan legislation, the Endless Frontiers Act in the Senate, the Eagle Act in the House. Uh, and and I say with some regret that the progressive wing of the Democratic Party just hasn't made this a priority at all. I don't know that they're necessarily against it, but it hasn't risen to the level where they're willing to pass it out and send it on to the president for signature. Jamil, last word. Well, I, I mean, I think we need to draw Sarah into the conversation. But look, here, here's the here's the thing about this, right? Who's holding up that bipartisan infrastructure bill? It's the president's party in the House. So if there, if we want to talk about leadership, right, the president needs to lead. The president of the United States needs to say, pass that bipartisan infrastructure bill. We are in the middle of a major supply chain crisis. I'm going to solve it. I'm going to break the logjam. I'm going to tell my progressive wing, lay off. Let us get this $1.5 trillion, by the way. You mentioned you know tens of billions of dollars. This is a $1.5 trillion infrastructure package. And it's being held up in favor of what? A $3.5 trillion social spending package? Really? That's that's going to solve our problem with China? Clearly not. Why won't the president stand up and say that? Let's let's separate the two. Let's get this thing done. There's bipartisan support for it, right? The adults are in the room. Let's make a deal. Now's the time. Sarah, do you want the last word here? <laughs> I mean, these are these are good points. It should get passed. I'm not. I mean, I, I don't even want to try and get into the heads of how all the politics is is working in Congress on all of this stuff. But I agree. But there's important stuff in the reconciliation bill as well that, you know, will potentially be completely missed if they move forward on just infrastructure. So point well taken. We need to do something, whether it comes as a package or, or not. But um, yeah, it's a it's a real problem right now. All right. Last part of the show. Let's uh, talk about the issue that each of us is following that's not necessarily on the front page. Um, Matthew, I'll go to you first. So I'm really interested to see what uh, happens in Iraq, if Iraq can pull together a decent government following its pretty fair elections the other week. Uh, after the debacle in Afghanistan, it's been easy to overlook that Iraq had these relatively successful elections. The Sunnis participated, pro-Iranian parties fared relatively poor, poorly, and Muqtadar al-Sadr, who I must say I thought a lot about in my previous life when he was an anti-American cleric, cleric who's um, militia was going after your soldiers has actually come inside the tent as a political player. So I'll be curious to see if his ascendance within the system moderates his politics and leads him to dismit, disband or greatly weaken his militia. So I'll be looking at Iraqi politics in the coming weeks. Jamil. Celeste, I'm following the Russian closure of its mission at the at NATO. Um, the, we had just previously, NATO previously just kicked out um, uh, eight Russian officials uh, because they were spying for Russia. And uh, Moscow, of course, denied that, which we all know is 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 uh, ridiculous. We we all know. I mean, this is part of the great game. Uh, but the decision now uh, by Russia to simply uh, leave behind any effort with NATO demonstrate yet once again uh, that it is willing to go it on its own, um, as it has in the Middle East, um, as it has with respect to Crimea, um, and as it has with respect to cyber activities. And so, I think this is a bad sign. I think that we have. Uh, been playing footsie with the Russians uh, for much too long um, and treating them like uh, a bigger player than they are. And we need to get tough with them 
and be very clear uh, that if they continue to behave the way they have in cyberspace, if they continue to be uh, to undermine American interests in Eastern Europe and the Middle East, we will respond and we will it will come at a cost to Russia. The president talked about cost to Russia uh, when when he was talking about cybersecurity a few months back. We have yet to impose those costs and the Russians continue uh, their pace of activity. Uh, as Jen Easterly said last week, it was great to see the bringing together of 30 nations to talk about ransomware and the problems and Russia was not invited there. That was a good sign. At the same time, I worry their, their suspension of their mission at NATO is, is a bad sign and we're not reading it for what it is, which is we Russia responds to very direct application of power. We have not done that. If we wanna solve some of the problems we have with them in Eastern Europe and the Middle East and cyberspace, now is the time to do that. Again, that requires leadership in the White House. We haven't had that in a while. I worry we won't see it here, but hope springs eternal. Would love to see it here. Sarah. So I'm following two huge global uh, meetings that are coming up. The first will start at the end of this month in Glasgow. It's the climate of the, it's the conference of the parties for the big climate agreement. Um, And the second is the ministerial conference from the World Trade Organization at the end of December. What I'm tracking is that both of these meetings that are going to have, you know, nearly every country in the world attending are going to be talking about how we solve the energy crisis and the climate crisis. What are the levers to do so, including trade? And the head of the WTO has called for, in a recent op-ed, a global carbon price. So I think that's a really, uh, you know, it's a a novel idea. I think that there's other ways to get at it, but certainly these are the types of issues that are going to be coming up and be on everybody's radar in the coming months. So I'm tracking the sad news we heard this morning that uh, Colin Powell passed away at the age of 84. Uh, He was uh, a giant in the national security space for our country, one of the most significant figures of the last two generations, I would say. Uh, And I'll just note, I, I had the I was fortunate enough to be able to travel with him from Nigeria back to the United States after an election observation mission. And we, uh, the whole group on the plane spent the night in Cape Verde uh, together. We all went out to dinner. He is a funny, down to earth, terrific human being. He advised all of us to buy Amazon stock in like 1999. And I really wish I had taken him up on that advice. Anyway, he will be missed. He's a great American. He gives us hope that we do have terrific statesmen and women. We just need to get them in the right positions. All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at May. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Riley Boyd for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. Fault lines.